We're looking at this morning at the subject of abounding grace. Why do we need abounding grace? Well, firstly, if you'll note your bulletin outline, the problem of more sin. In our last study, we learned that not only are we guilty as sinners because of our relationship to Father Adam, in Adam all die, writes Paul, but we are guilty of personal sin, sinning in degree and in sinning in quantity in ways that Adam never did. So what I'm saying here is we can't blame it all on Adam. can't say, well, you know, that's the way I'm, I am because of Adam. Adam had but one command to obey, and when he sinned, Paul tells us of Adam, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Verse 16 of our text. I want you to think about that just for a minute. Think a little deeper than the surface. One sin. One sin. Yes, Adam had but one rule from God to obey, and that was to abstain from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which grew in the middle of the garden paradise, Eden. One infraction, one act of disobedience to the will of God, that's all it takes, that's all it took to constitute Adam a sinner worthy of condemnation and death. Now, we scratch our heads at that. We're so used to sin, we're so comfortable with it, that we're saying, you mean to tell me one, and we use the word mistake, one mistake and, you know, out of the garden, banning, angel, sword, don't come back. Condemnation, death, all of those things. I think if men would just stop here for a moment to ponder the significance of this, it would go a long way in helping them to recognize the standard, God's standard of perfect holiness. Perfect means perfect. This characterizes God and all that He does. Maybe then they would not be so quick to excuse their copious amounts of sin as being trivial and unimportant. If one sin killed Adam, and by repercussion, all of his offspring, what will many sins do to you? You need to think about that. Paul tells us that the law of God, think again Moses and the Ten Commandments, verse 20, was added or given so that the trespass might increase. One of the Greek words for describing sin is trespass. Trespass. There's a number of words. Hamartia, to fall short of, you know, but here's a word that means trespass. Literally, a side slip in the sense of crossing a line or exceeding a border. Every hunter knows what trespass means. There are some farmers and landowners who do not want hunters inundating their pastures because of the livestock that they have grazing there, and so they will post no 
trespassing signs on trees or posts at the entrance of their acreage. They do not have to say much more on the sign other than no trespassing. It's their land, it's their livestock, it's their house or barn that's in the thicket. And they may either grant or prohibit hunting on what is their property. I'm not sure what the penalty is uh, for trespassing, but I know historically, historically that people have been fined for trespassing, they have been uh, imprisoned for trespassing, they have even been shot for trespassing. Why? For violating the law, that's why. Over in Lexington last summer, there were a number of teenagers who were arrested not only for breaking into cabins and stealing and vandalizing property, but for trespassing on premises which did not belong to them. And guess what? No posting was necessary. In other words, it was understood that to go beyond the survey lines of a lot or the barrier of a window or a door uninvited makes you a trespasser liable to the penalty of the law. And they were caught and processed. Well, Adam stepped over the line on one command, the only command he had, and the curse of God took immediate effect. Bam! He was guilty. No ifs, ands, buts. Death became his portion, condemnation, spoiled his paradise. He was banned from Eden along with Eve. Life eternal slipped through his grasp. That was the aftermath of just one sin. But think of this truth, verse 20. With the initiation of the law of God given through Moses, trespasses increased exponentially. That is, instead of one infraction, sin leaped into the thousands, into the millions. Instead of one command to break, now there were ten times that. More if you ferret out all the implications of those commandments. And Paul says, instead of one man sinning, Adam, now verse 19, many were made sinners. Many sinners trespassing many commandments, multiple times doing it, equals what? A flood of sin. Now he says it's sin increase. It's almost an understatement. Things went from bad to worse. The lawbreakers became the rule, not the exception, and everyone and his brother was guilty. By the time of the days of Noah, just seven generations from Adam, think about that, just seven generations, we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Genesis 6, verse 5. Talk about an impossible scenario. Wow. No one was exempt. Everyone was guilty. The law of God through Moses intensified everything. Now that came later after Noah. And it intensified things over what we read here about Noah's day. 
James puts it this way, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James 2, verse 9 through 11. And of course, it would apply to any of the other Ten Commandments. James just uses that as an illustration. In other words, you only have to break one law one time, you're a lawbreaker. That's it. People, you see, want to pick and choose because they think some sins are less indicting than others. For example, disobedience to parents. Oh, not so bad. Not so bad. Stealing what doesn't belong to you. Oh, bad. Bad. Telling lies, passing on gossip, passing on slander. Not so bad. Committing adultery. Very bad. Romans 1, verse 31, however, lists disobedience to parents as one of the righteous decrees which, if violated, deserves death. Read it. And Revelation 21, verse 8, lists all liars as companions with murderers, sexually immoral, occult worshipers, who will share in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, I'm reading scripture, which is the second death. Oh, not so bad? See, God doesn't operate by your definitions. He operates by His definitions. And it's gracious of Him to give us His definitions in the scripture of what is bad. And so James is saying, hey, Whatever your sin, even if it were but one sin, makes you a lawbreaker liable to the penalty of God's law. One sin makes you a sinner. Imagine a defense attorney arguing for his client before a judge on a charge of murder using this as his defense. But judge, my client only killed one person, not four. How silly is that? And have you not heard enough court cases to know that generally there's a long list of offenses leveled at a person who has committed a crime. Well, obstructing of justice, uh, committing a crime, evading property, evading the police offer, unlawful entry, possession of an unregistered weapon. All this and much more leading up to and contributing to the break and entry charge or the charge of stealing for example. This is not generally just one offense. It's many that lead up to it. So Paul is so right when he says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Sin did increase and multiple guilt with it. Now secondly, God's provision of more grace. We've got all this extra sin going on in the world. And Paul says, yeah, but God has all this extra grace going on in the world. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased, notice the next one, all the more. There are two Greek terms here for increased. 
The NIV does an okay job of translating, but not the best job. In fact, none of the translations, none of the English translations, bring out the full meaning of these terms. First term that's used here, where sin increased, is a term that means increased in quantity. It means to fill up. And so the NIV is, is good here. It uses the word increase. Sin increased. More sins is the idea. Not just one anymore, but many. And, and if you look down and through the text, Paul uses that word many, 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 many. He uses that again and again. I think we have a little problem seeing the rationale for this with Paul's explanation given in verse 13. He says, before the law was given, sin was in the world. Well, we know that because people die. The wages of sin is death, so they died. But sin is not taken into account. I'm reading scripture. It, that is, it's not counted as sin when there is no law. Let me ask this. How can a person be legally guilty of being a lawbreaker if there's no law on the books to break? That's what he's saying. Death from Adam to Moses, as we have learned, was due to all people, all people's identification with Adam as their representative head. In Adam all die. That's the truth. We need to hang on to that. We're not giving that one up. He sinned, he failed, he represented us, we fail in him. Okay, so what happened when God finally did give his law for living through Moses? Sin increased in this sense, in this sense. Now, now there was a law on the books prohibiting certain kinds of conduct. Many more than Adam's one restriction. And with this new expanded standard, the trespasses were counted against those who disobeyed. So what was not counted as sin before suddenly was counted now with the result that sin increased. So what we are left with is the descendants of Adam sinning in ways and to a greater extent than Adam ever did. I don't think you can blame it all on Adam. One sin became many sins. One trespass of God's one command turned into hundreds and thousands of trespasses. Think of this as um, yeast, which is used in baking. Paul actually uses yeast as a symbol of the insipid influx of sin when he wrote to the Corinthian church that was tolerating known sin in the church. And here's what he writes. Your boasting, he says, is not good. They were, they were proud of this. Well, we're very magnanimous, you see. We, we have this sinner in the church, but we're, we're bearing with them. And, and, and Paul takes them to task. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival of Passover, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with Bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity, the bread of truth. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. You say, well, what's his point? His point is that the sins of malice and wickedness were spreading through the entire assembly like yeast does in a batch of dough. 
Think of this. All that was due to the giving of the law of Moses. In a sense, things got worse. The law was not given to pull you up to God. It was given to bury you. It was given to point out in no uncertain terms that you have no chance whatsoever, not in a thousand lifetimes, to please God and earn heaven by being good. And as if that were not bad enough, guess what happened since the birth and ministry of Jesus? God's perfect, sinless Son. Jesus says in His own words, If I had not come and spoken to them, the people of His day, they would not be guilty of sin. What? What? Hang on now. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not come among them and done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. John 15, verse 22 through 25. There's one thing to disobey the law of God. It's quite another thing to disobey and hate the lawgiver. Folks, with every new and expansive revelation of himself, God holds the recipients of that light to a higher standard. The teachings of Jesus, the miracles that Jesus performed, the recording of such in the Holy Bible makes all who have access to a Bible defenseless and without excuse for their sin. People cannot defend themselves by arguing, well, I wasn't there to see the miracles. Well, I wasn't there to hear Jesus teach directly. That's true. But you have the divine record of these events recorded by eye and ear witnesses of people who were there and who wrote their histories with impeccable accuracy. And so you are guilty for your unbelief, just as though you stood that day in the crowds who could have reached out and touched the hems of Jesus' garment. Jesus says, they hated me without a reason. And you do too, unless you repent. There's plenty, there's copious evidence of who God is and what Christ has done. So, sin increased from the giving of the law. And then once again went the coming of Jesus, the lawgiver. So now what? Well, man as a sinner is worse off than Adam ever was. He can't breathe a breath without sinning. He cannot think a thought or do a deed that is pure and righteous using God's standard now, not yours. We are drowning in sin, engulfed in the dark sea of our own making. Sin is everywhere, in our own hearts, in our own family, in our own extended family, in our country, in all the nations of the entire world. And if you count from the time of the giving of the law to our present day, it's an absolute mercy of God that we are not all cast into hell's fire for eternity. Talk about the long-suffering of God. 
We say to one another, well, just be patient. <laughs> we talk. We're having an argument, we're having a discussion. We say, well, just be patient. And we, want them, we want the person we're talking to to chill out for a day or something of that matter. Think of centuries of centuries and centuries and centuries and eons and eons of ages since the time of Adam and Moses. That's long-suffering. That's our God. He is patient beyond patience. But God has done more. He's done much more than just be patient. And that brings us to the second term for the word increase that's used in verse 20. Where sin increased, that is in quantity and magnitude, grace increased all the more, says Paul. Now this is a different Greek word Altogether, it's not the same word, but they're both translated increased. And that's the problem here. This word means to have excess, to have more than enough, to have surplus, to excel, to superabound. For example, at the feeding of the multitude in John 5, verse 12 and 13, we read, When they had all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. It's this word. Part of this word. I'll explain in a few minutes. It's, it's this word without the prefix on it. All that's left over, let nothing be wasted. And so they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over. Again, the word is used by those who had eaten. John 6, verse 12 and 13. That's this word in, without the prefix on it. So it's talking about excess. 5,000 were fed that day, but there were 12 baskets of food left over. So if we just stopped here, let's, if we just stopped here, what Paul is saying in our text would go something like this. Where sin increased, grace was supplied in excess to meet that need. In other words, plenty of grace to deal with any sin. This in itself, that's a marvelous truth, is it not? Think about that. It says to us that God is not going to be thwarted by the abundance of sin that men commit against Him. That's a marvelous truth. Sin increases, grace increases to deal with it. But as marvelous as this truth is, God, Paul goes on an extra mile to drive his point home by adding a prefix to the Greek word. Hypo, from which we get our word hyper. Hyper. Hypo, hyper. And this means, just the prefix means, super duper. Super abound. And in so doing this, he is accentuating the super part of this verb. So that it would read something like this. Where sin increased, God's grace super-duper abounded. No popular English translation conveys this. Not one. King James Version, grace did much more abound. Well, the word means that without the prefix. NIV, grace increased all the more. 
Well, a word means that without the prefix. English Standard Version, grace abounded all the more. New English Bible, where sin was multiplied, grace immeasurably exceeded it. Even the Phillips tra translation, it, he does a fair paraphrase which captures the essence of the word. He writes this, Though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God His grace is wider and deeper still. Well, that's getting closer. But do you see how the various translators are struggling with this word? And that is because this word is only found here in the Bible in Romans 5. Yeah, the, the suffix is, I mean, the, the main word is found elsewhere, but this word with the prefix on it, not found anywhere else. I think Donald Gray Barnhouse, in my view, has the best understanding. Here's what he writes. Where sin reached a high water mark, grace completely flooded the world. That should make you shout. We're drowning in sin in our cultures, in our families, in our personal lives. And God floods us with super-duper abounding grace. Grace to save us. Grace to bring us back to Him. It cannot be denied that with the entrance of the law, sin in men took on a whole new dimension. There was and there is an explosion of sin. It is as Solomon wrote of the wicked, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, writes Solomon, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. And although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God, yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days, will not, their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 through 10. There's a kind of false peace in the wicked that uh, ensues because they're not brought to justice quickly. They think that because they have not been caught, they will never be caught. This emboldens them to sin all the more. One of the problems I have with postmillennialism, which is a, uh, a view of end times, is the notion that the world is getting better and better and better and will eventually usher in the kingdom of God as Jesus returns. But let me ask, is the world getting better and better and better in the spiritual realm? Oh, I know, we have increased knowledge through discovery. Technology is advancing, yes. Procedures in medicine, hitherto impossible, yes. This is all true, true. Yet none of this has curbed sin, but in many ways has contributed to sin. The internet can be a cesspool for all kinds of wickedness, exempting pornography. I mean, if you were just to take that away, that's not the only problem of the internet. People's lives and livelihood have been ruined by rumors and gossip and slander and malicious talk through the internet. Every once in a while we see um, one of these stories come, come to the news. 
There was libel suits and things of that nature. Teenagers, teenagers have committed suicide because they've been bullied on the internet. What would have taken multiple phone calls or letters in a smear campaign in the past now takes seconds in a group email sent out to create havoc and to foment false and damaging accusations. It can be used for wickedness. A tsunami of sin has engulfed humanity and the world is drowning in the mud and the filth that is choking and damning the undiscerning. But praise God, the grace of God super duper abounds to meet this challenge and to rescue sinners from self-destruction. Hoopo and this word. Hyper grace. Hyper grace. In the old Star Wars series, I know I'm dating myself. In the old Star Wars series, when the Enterprise starship was under attack and the danger of defeat, Captain Kirk would order the engineers to engage the rocket engines into hyperdrive, he would say. And instantly, the spacecraft accelerated to warp speed, the speed of light to escape the imminent danger. Split second, they were gone out into outer space because of hyperdrive. Now, hyper-grace. Think about that. Hyper-grace is God's answer to increased sin. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel that you are drowning in failure and sin. You may feel that even God cannot or will not help you. But Paul is saying that even when you are engulfed in sin to the, degree that, to the degree that your death and destruction appear imminent, God's grace can step in and whisk you away to safety. Praise God for hyper grace. I don't care if it's not found anywhere else in the Bible, it's found here by the great apostle of grace. And he's telling us the heart of God. Sin is not going to defeat this world. Sin is not going to defeat His purposes. His people are going to make it to glory. Now, that brings us then to the last point of the outline, the promises of superabounding grace. Two, number one, the promise that God will not withhold His grace. Do not predicate of God what you would do and what you have done when people have sinned against you. To do this is to construct God in your own sinful image. What do I mean by this? I mean simply that we as sinners treat other sinners not always as we would have them do unto us, but we treat them in hostility if they dare to hurt us in any way. The whole idea of getting even, or I'll make them pay, is part and parcel to the world's philosophy of what is done when people sin against us, but it has no part in the Christian faith. When John the Baptist preached against Herod marrying his brother's wife, we are told, so Herodias, that's the wife, Herodias 
nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Mark 6, verse 19 and 20. I'm going to get him. That's Herodias. That's her viewpoint. He can't say that about me. He can't spread those things about me. I'll get him. It was a New Testament version of the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Well, Herodias, you see, was offended by John's exposure of her sin. And so what did she do? She wanted to kill him. But that feeling, she, she held a grudge against John. And she looked for an opportunity to get even. Well, at Herod's birthday party, Herodias' daughter pleased Herod with her dance. And so he did something foolish. He promised her anything she wanted, even to half of his kingdom. And after consulting with her mother, Herodias, she came back and she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And because Herod had made this promise before all of his party guests, he complied. And that's how John was executed. Such is the thinking of the pagan and the unbelieving. But God does not hold a grudge toward sinners and, without, and withhold saving grace so that he can get even. He is super gracious. Sometimes we withhold kindness and grace to others because they were blessed above us. And we're jealous. Or we think we were treated unfairly. Moses tells us, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing that his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 41. Have you been slighted in some way by another? They received something that you wanted. They got it, you didn't. And so you've determined in your heart, I'll pay them back. I'll get even. Now sometimes the Bible does speak of God paying people, but the payment is always based on justice, not sentimentality and not hurt feelings. For example, Jeremiah writes, Flee from Babylon, run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It's time for the Lord's vengeance. He will pay her what she deserves. Jeremiah 51 verse 6. God warns us that this is His prerogative alone and that we are not to play God. Do not take vengeance, my friends, writes Paul. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19. More often than not, God operates with superabounding grace, and the sin, our sin, which rightly earns us a hot spot in hell, God forgives and ends up making us friends when we were enemies before. You know he did this with Paul when he was known as Saul? When he was in hot pursuit of Christians in Damascus, that he might arrest them and put them to death, Jesus did not strike him dead. 
Instead, he converted Saul in a blinding light, and the great persecutor of the church became the greatest apostle of the church. And Paul never forgot this. Near life's end, Paul wrote to Timothy something like an abbreviated autobiography. Here's what he wrote. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Now, it's not the same word in Romans 5. It's a synonym, but it's the same concept. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1. 13 through 7. He breaks into, uh, uh, into doxology at his, own th- at his own thoughts there that the Spirit of God gave him. Wow. God took me the worst sinner and He saved me and He used me as an example. You think you're bad? I got your bad covered and then some. And God's grace reached down and touched me and brought me into His family, forgave me, cleansed me and so on. What God can do for the worst of sinner, He can do, He will do for you. So let me ask, do you think you have sinned as much and as wickedly as Paul? He says he was the worst. And under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has written the truth. And yet there was no withholding of saving grace on God's part. Even if you think of yourself as a hopeless cause... I can tell you that God's superabounding grace dispels the hopelessness. You cannot outsin God's grace. You may be a blasphemer, a thief, an immoral man, an immoral woman, a liar. You may have done a thousand things for which you are ashamed. You would never want a fellow sinner to know, let alone God. But God does know. He always knows. And in justice, He could strike you dead and cast you into hell. But our text tells us that this superabounding grace is a reigning grace. Verse 21, Just as sin had a reign that resulted in death and still does for the unrepentant, grace has a reign for the believing and it reigns through righteousness of Jesus and it results in eternal life. Verse 21. God promises not to withhold saving grace to those who seek Him. Paul writes, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 1. Verse 7. That's the first promise super abounding grace makes. God will not withhold grace because of the condition of your heart. 
And the second promise is this, that God's grace will never run dry or be subject to loss. Once you get it, you got it. And because others have it, doesn't mean that you're ruled out. One of the hot topics of our day is the supply of oil. Gas prices, as you know, are inching towards $4. I saw this morning they're only a penny away from $4 a gallon. And projections are that by fall they will be $5 a gallon. Oh, how wonderful projections are. Explanation given is, well, supply and demand. We are being told China and India are sucking up more oil than ever, and so supply is being depleted at an alarming rate. The doomsday scenario, which is a lie, is that we will run out because of this. We may run low, but it will not be due to a lack of supply, but because we're not drilling, we're not probing, we're not processing the oil which lies beneath our own lands. It is projected that there's enough oil underground in America that exceeds, exceeds the oil in Saudi Arabia. It's just not being drilled for and obtained. But here's the point. Even if the doomsday forecasts were true about oil or any number of our other natural resources, don't think of the supernatural grace of God as being in short supply. God is not dipping into a barrel marked grace, and when it's gone, it's gone. Too bad, you're out of luck. Luck has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with salvation. Grace, rather, is like the widow's jar of olive oil that every time she dipped into it, to make cakes for herself and Elijah as she mixed it with flour. The jar was just as full before she started baking. 1 Kings 17, verse 16. That's the way grace works. Never going to run out of God. Never runs out of grace. And the second error here is that sometimes Christians, Christians now, already saved, will commit some horrendous sin. Embezzlement, adultery, slander, and because of it, they will conclude that they have fallen from grace. The one place that this phrase is used, fallen from grace, is found in Galatians 5, where Paul was addressing people who professed to believe in Jesus as Savior, but they wanted to maintain Jewish law as necessary, a necessary ingredient along with that. They wanted it both ways, law plus grace. Faith plus my obedience, that saves me. No, when you mix law with grace, you cancel out grace. Read it in Romans 11. God's grace in the Christian life is not like radioactive material, like radium or uranium or one of those things. You know, that, that loses some of its atoms just sitting there. So scientists talk about the half-life of a particular radioactive material. It gets to the point where there's no energy left in it. It's half, and then it's half of that, and then it's half of that. Eventually, it gets to be useless. God's grace isn't like that in the Christian life. As a believer indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, you have 100% of God's grace available. 
and operative 100% of the time. Wherever sin is found in you, grace keeps you safe. Grace keeps you forgiven. Again, verse 21, it reigns to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the Savior that's been born unto you. And that's why Newton in his hymn writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You know what Newton was before God saved him? He was an immoral man. had a lot of women. He was also a slave trader. He ran boats to Africa, captured black people, stuck them in the hold of those ships, and brought them into the Indies and into ports to sell these people. He's a wicked slave trader. And when God saved him, he wrote amazing grace. He just couldn't. He couldn't get over it, that God could reach down in His grace and touch the likes of Him and turn His life around. He did turn His life around. He became a pastor. <laughs> if you knew the lives of your pastors, if you knew our sin. you would talk of amazing grace, too. You would. If you knew your own heart, if you could look into the mirror of God's Word, as James says, and not forget what the Spirit of God has shown you, you would also say, God, hyper-grace, super-grace, amazing. This is the Savior that has been born unto you. Let's pray. Our Lord, with grateful thanks, we come and we praise you for this one word that's found in this one text in all of Scripture. Hyper- Grace, superabounding grace. The one word alleviates our fears. It brings healing to our second sin-sick souls. It points out to us once again as believers, it reminds us that where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. There is no one here, and that's the other truth, that has been so wicked, has sinned so much, that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. No, there's no one here. No one listening to my voice out in Radio Land. No one in any place where the gospel goes forth that has sinned so wickedly that God's grace cannot and will not come to them and rescue them through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came, to solve the sin problem. Lord, draw whom you will today to Jesus, to the foot of the cross, 
And may we see Him there dying for our sin. And may we see Him in His righteous life living in obedience to the law, not one time disobeying. He did that for His people representatively. So if we become His people by faith and repentance, all His work, all that He did applies to us. And you look at us through the screen, through the veil of Jesus Christ, and you don't see this wicked, hell-bound sinner, but you see this forgiven sinner, cleansed sinner, righteous sinner. You see grace reigning unto eternal life. Now, if we don't know that this morning, then I pray you'll show it to us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, dear Christ, for sending your Spirit. We sang of that this morning, that you sent the Spirit of God upon us, that we might be made the sons of God. We praise you for that. That's your work, you do it. Do the work here, Lord, for any that are lost. In Christ's name, amen. Our close